second installment of Play the Hand You Are Dealt by MJ Granberry. We're super excited to listen to this final part today. But until then, we're going to chit chat. So I've actually got a couple of emails I'm going to read today, but the first two were about summer camp and I just pulled them up. Like they're from 2019. So they must have been when we were last summer or uh, sorry, it was in April of 2019. So we must have been talking about summer camp coming up. Or maybe it was our Camp Hardwood series or I something. I bet it was our yeah, Camp Hardwood series. Yeah, I bet that series. was it. So I'm just going to say a blanket statement. If you ever have an email you want to send us, a story you want to tell, send it in. Especially if it's summer camp. I love that shit. <laughs> so we, I love summer camp. I know. So we had, you know, last year we had a bunch of summer camps planned and they all got canceled. It was like one after the other kept getting canceled because of COVID. And this year... It's this the first time that both of my girls are going to Girl Scout sleepaway camp. So they're both going for it's Saturday to Saturday, so like five days, I guess, solid days that they're both going to be together at Girl Scout camp. I told I was talking to somebody about Girl Scouts last night. I said when I think back, I said I always remember all of my Girl Scout stuff. Oh, I love that. I was like, I remember the father dollar dances. I remember the tenting when I was like eight. I remember the spider that dropped on my leg. <laughs> and while you're still emotionally scarred by that to this day. <laughs> yes. But I just yeah. really always remember the Girl Scouts. Yeah. For some reason, it's stuck there. I love that. I hope it stays for them too. My oldest, Lydia, she wants to cut her hair off before she goes to camp. Because she's so worried about being able to wash it and do it on her own. Because I still help her wash her hair. Because she has hair like me. Like, she mm-hmm. can't help it. It's just long and thick. And it's, she's got little arms. Like, she's got little 10-year-old arms. Like, she has a hard time and washing. she's got thick hair. Yeah, yeah. Watching a huge head of hair. So, she said, she asked if he, she could get it cut before she goes. And I was like, yeah, sure. So, she goes, like, the 1st of June to get it done. So How short are we talking? She wants to go to her shoulders. But I said, I think you should make sure you can still put it in a ponytail. Because she loves a ponytail. But I don't know if she likes it because it's, you know, it's long and that's easy. You know, maybe she would like it down if it were shorter. I don't know. You're the one that always wears your up. What do you say? <laughs> I, well, I'm going to be with her. I'm going to chop my hair off are in you, a couple weeks. Are you really going to do it? Yeah, I think I'm going to take it a little bit, maybe oh like gosh. right below my chin. You are going to look so fucking good. I so, can't wait. I had dyed my hair. has like a purple tint to it and they uh-huh. had to bleach it all and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like kind of over this. So I'm like, just chop it all off and let it grow back healthy. Yeah, yeah. Your hair grows so fast, too. So, like, in a week, it'll be back down to your butt. <laughs> but I'm, I've am i never done it before. You've so. never had short hair before? You never once, Not like... Not since I was, like, a little, little girl. Wow. Serious? I thought every woman went through, like, their red hair chopped off phase. <laughs> chopped off red hair phase. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's when I met my husband. <laughs> I was a strawberry blonde. <laughs> I had really short hair. Yeah. I took a picture of me actually blonde. Oh, yeah, you did. That's mm-hmm. the one you sent me, yeah, when she was bleaching out your hair. Yeah, that was some bleached out hair. 
You were like, I'm blonde. I was like, do you want to be? Because that is some blonde ass hair. (laughs) No, I felt awkward. I remember I got like caramel streaks in at one time. And every time I looked in the mirror, I didn't feel like it was me. I was like, this is wrong. Really? My hair is dark. Yeah. No, I don't know. I think you've got gorgeous hair. I think it suits your complexion. I think... The, your face is perfect for short hair. Like, you've got, like, tiny features. I think it could be so cute. I think you'll rock it. find out. Yep. <laughs> Let's go. Like you say, it's only hair. It grows back. So, all right. Well, I've got a couple of emails we're going to go through. And like I said, I, I mean, if you have summer camp stories, send it to us. We'll share it. Hello, ladies. I love your podcast. I listen all the time. So, here goes. It's the summer of 1983. I'm 11 and my sister is 9. That's pretty close to my kids, so. Parents send us to sleepaway camp for the first time. It's four days and three nights at a local Girl Scout camp. Camp Sacagawea rocks. <laughs> the Saturday before me and my sister are to go, are to go. my parents go, hey, let's go buy our first VCR. Woohoo! Not only that, let's go rent our first movie. So what do my parents rent the oh, night no. before we go to sleep away at camp for the first time? That's right, boys and girls. Friday the 13th. What the serious fuck? <laughs> what is this? Wait, is Friday the 13th Freddy Krueger or I don't know. Jason? I think that's the Jason. No, that's how Halloween is Jason. Yeah, I was going to say, okay, at least it wasn't Jason because that would really die it. No, I think that's Friday the 13th. Nightmare on M Street's Freddy. Friday the 13th yeah. is Jason. Michael Myers is Halloween. People are screaming. Scre- they're at us screaming right the answer. They, <laughs> no, that was the Jason in the woods. That's the Friday the Thirteenth. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it is. Jason is Friday the Thirteenth. So okay. it says, "What the serious fuck?" Then when we get to camp, it's canvas tents on wooden platforms with the flaps that have to stay rolled up unless it's raining. And you guessed it, our camp section is right next to the motherfucking lake. Insert Jason oh. noise here. Thanks, Mom and Dad. My sister and I can laugh at it now. But in the end, it was an awesome experience, and we continued to do sleepover camps for four more summers, then moved on to working at local day camps. Hope you like my true life story, Andrea. Can you fucking imagine? I would never sleep again. So my dad was like a prankster galore and then one time he let us camp out in the backyard and he put the tent up and everything for us this motherfucker <laughs> came out at midnight with a chainsaw no and scared the no. he didn't come near us like he was way off that in the is distance fucked up. we like jump out of the thing and run in through the back door oh my god that's so Fucked up. But I love it. I love that he did that. I I love that it wasn't me. We were all, do you remember Bloody Mary? Yes. And we were so scared of him. My dad's like, I'm going to go in here and do it. And he goes in there and does it. And then on the third time, he starts screaming and banging on the door. (laughs) I remember my cousin like bawling. (laughs) Oh my God. I love that shit. Oh Nowadays, they're probably like, that's traumatizing your child abuse. I know, like, right? Some of the funnest memories I remember. <laughs> like you, you said, asshole. you can laugh about it now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This one's entitled Summer Camp Story. 
Hello, my name is Vicki. My summer camp story is kind of embarrassing. The summer before my first year in junior high school, I was at summer camp with several friends and my brother. The owner of the camp had become good friends with my parents. The owner had three kids, one boy and two girls. I had a massive crush on their son who was 18 or 19. One day it was raining and I left the cabin late. I was wearing a pair of pants, a shirt and flip flops. There was a reason adults tell you to never run in the rain in flip flops. I ran in the rain in flip flops and ended up slipping and landing on my ass on a rock. I couldn't move because I was in so much pain. So I'm laying flat on the ground in the pouring rain in front of 100, 150 summer camp students. Oh, no. The owner's son ran out in the rain, picked me up, and carried me up to the nurse's tent. He sat me down on the bed and rolled me on my stomach so no pressure was on my ass. My clothes were soaked and I was freezing, so the owner's son went to his cabin and brought me back a pair of his sweatpants and his shirt for me to wear because the, because the owners, the dad and his son, we're going to have to take me to the city, to the urgent care clinic, to have my back checked out. Oh, shit. I ended up breaking my tailbone. <gasps> That's fucking rough. It was embarrassing because I did it in front of my crush. As I got older, it became a joke between his son and I, although I kept his sweatpants and his shirt. Moral of the story, if you're going to go big, do it in front of your crush, Vicky. I'm going to pretend like they got together. I was just going to say the same thing. <laughs> I was like, so you got married and you have five kids. Okay, great. I'm glad that worked out for you. I want to write a book about that now. I know. I was about to say I would like to write a book where she did, somebody just humiliates oh, in front of this person you've been God. crushing Yes. Like some kind of like, okay, what if we wrote a book where it was like they were in high school and it was in the auditorium and it was like spirit day or something. And, like, she's in front of the whole school and, like, something terrible happens. And her crush is, like, there and he sees her. What would he do? Do you think he would, would, like. Maybe he does something to draw attention. Oh, that's a good idea. Like, to take the attention off her. Like, maybe he does something equally as embarrassing. Yeah. Oh, What if he, like. Oh, my God. What if he, like, pulled his pants down or something, you know? Like, just something completely ridiculous to get people to look at him. Like Maybe he, if he's, like, the super popular kid, it wouldn't be too hard for him to draw attention. Yeah, true. Oh, mm-hmm. okay, now I want to write that. We were talking write about... Write that down. We'll okay, forget it. Okay, shit. I need to... I know. Oh, fuck. I need to make a note. Damn it. Where's the pen? Okay, I got it. <laughs> so, okay, what are we going to call it? It's high school embarrassment. Okay, got it. All right, so we're going to we're gonna have to write that story because we were actually talking about writing, like, a high school book the other day. We haven't done it in a I while. I was just thinking, I think those could go. We had an idea. Those might be able to go together. What do you mean? The high school we ha- book? Yeah. Remember the fortune tellers? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, that could oh, all that's work a good idea. together. Yeah. For some reason, I don't know how you and I, we, for some ways, and we talked about this. But I said, what if, like, the mom was sort of like a drifter and she did, like, fortune telling or something like that and somehow like the the mom like what so the kids went to high school together and like the guy had like a party or something like that maybe i don't know we were talking about like what if the mom like gave a fake reading to the dad yeah, just like, like a, to swindle him out of money or something yeah she's a con artist kind of yeah. like the mentalist where they really don't have anything yes but they're yeah. just really good at reading, reading people. people yes exactly we have one brain guys so <laughs> yeah so that we kind of came up with that concept we were like oh that would be fun and then we could write high school romance and that would be the conflict and stuff 
So, yeah, what if it was something like that? Like, she was the new girl. She got really embarrassed, and he's, you know, been there and kind of the jock. And he draws yeah. That would be really fun. Okay. So oh, I came just up- thought of a twist. Oh, okay. Well, you're going to tell me then later. Don't say it on yeah. the podcast. <laughs> we'll save those ideas for later. But, you know, if you guys hear about a book happening later, just know that uh, we came up with it on the podcast. <laughs> Okay, so this one actually came in this week. Oh, wow, this is a new one. <laughs> this is interview questions for you all. Hello, lady DJs. First, I want to say that you are awesome. Thanks for making my car rides enjoyable and creating a place to escape. We all need that with everything that's going on. I was wondering if you all would answer some interview questions on the show. I love the Facebook group, and sometimes I'll leave with a question on my mind. So I was wondering if you would answer them on the podcast. Feel free to answer all, some or none. So some of them are directed at Tessa, so we'll have to just sort of answer the best we can. But the first one says, Alexa Riley, you have talked about it briefly over a few episodes, and I know you cannot say a lot due to legal reasons. Can you summarize what you're able to on what happened with your Amazon and Kindle Unlimited? Oh, man. <laughs> that's, that's right off the bat. Yeah, the To make it not version. sound so sad. Yeah. Um, it was, had to do with thick. Yeah. And the success behind Thick. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. It was popular. And then we got accused of that the sales weren't real. That we bought like clickbaiters or that something. That bots or whatever. I don't even know what that is or how you would go about doing it. And But Amazon did not believe that all these people bought wanted to thick. read Thick. <laughs> yep. That, that clicked on the book and read the pages. So, you know, there's a lot that we can't say legally, you know, that we're we're bound to not say. But one of the things that I walk away from this is that we never had to pay anything back. So that's what I like to leave people with. So, you know, like, you know, there's usually when a, a party's guilty or there's a settlement of some sort and they can't say anything. Look at sort of what's left at the end of that. You know, does somebody have to pay damages? Did someone have to remove something? You know, or that sort of thing. Like, look at it in in that way. And Amazon couldn't prove that we didn't do it or that we did do it. (laughs) They just said, this can't be real. So, I mean, it is what it is. You know, like there, there's, again, there's a lot we can't say. And it was such a long process to get to the point where we're at now, where it's like we're able to sell our books on our website and every other platform except Amazon, because that's just, you know, after after a year of dealing with lawyers and, and everything else, it was just like, fuck. Yeah, it was ready to move on to something else. Yeah. I mean, I, I went into therapy because of it. Like, that's what pushed me into it. I mean, it was the professionally the worst time in my life i mean maybe even outside of professional i've never experienced something that awful like just no, it wasn't catastrophic just the, but yeah it wasn't just the um amazon getting pulled it was mm-hmm. the accusations and yeah. i never understood social media bullying until mm-hmm. then yeah and yeah. how it can mm-hmm. give you i know it might sound crazy a little bit of psc yeah, PTSD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, like, I won't go on Twitter. I'll never go back on that one. Like, I don't go on it to browse or to, to – to, I cannot go back on it because it was, it was awful. Like, the things people said, and it, like you said, that we were accused of, and, and, and it didn't matter. Like, I remember, like, when the, all this first happened, people were like, well, what'd you do? 
And I was like, I don't know. What did I do? Like, somebody fucking tell me what I did. And they then, wouldn't tell us what I did. We had to get a, we had to lawyer up and get it pulled out. And we barely still got an answer. And it's like, you sink tens of thousands of dollars into something, then you still, you know, like it. You know, and, and that was the thing, too. And even on social media, when someone would ask a question, like, let's say it wasn't harmless, they'd be like, well, what is this? You know, what's book stuffing? You you say you put a bonus book in the back. That's book, book stuffing. And I would explain to people, no, that's not what it is. Like, that's not what we did. Like, people can say, like, those people say, oh, Alexa Riley's a scammer. They book stuffed or, or whatever. But that's not look- it. Yeah, because you can look at our book, Kingpin. Mm-hmm. After Kingpin, we made a book called Monster, and we, or Mobster, and we put them together. Mobster was not sold by itself. Mm-hmm. They were both just books, brand new books, together. Yeah, and we did so that. So I actually had to pull them apart and make new covers. And that was something, like, we tried to explain to people, but, you know, it's, at a certain point, people make up their mind about you and you're not going to change their opinion. And, and it is what it is. You know, like some people say that, you know, we don't take romance seriously because we write silly, fluffy books that, you know, we're not romance authors because we make fun of the genre when we write books that we want to read. It's not making fun of it when we fucking love it, you know. But, you know, when somebody would say something like, oh, you're book stuffing, blah, blah, blah. You know, Kingpin's a great example with the book Mobster in the back. We did that also with the book Mechanic. We wrote an extra book called Law of Love. We did this. We put these two books together because we wrote a whole book and then we wrote a bonus story to it that was like 5,000 words. That's like 20 pages. So instead of making our readers pay full price for a 20-page book, we would put that f- book for free in the back of a new book. They were both new stories, never released anywhere else. So this had nothing to do with Amazon. Like Amazon didn't pull our books because we were accused of scamming and book stuffing. People just said that's what we did because they make assumptions. Like, okay. you know, it, it's hindsight, you know, is is different. I wish I would have maybe explained it a little better. But even now, knowing what I know, you're not no. going to change people's minds. Like there was, people. there was a mob that said, you know, that accused us of like taking money away from, from other readers and stuff. And it was just like, I, I don't even know how to, how to begin to explain it, you know? So it, it was, you know, yeah, there was people just, some people like to argue on yeah. Facebook and, that's, and it, yeah, it was, Twitter, there was that's just what it is. Yeah. It was such a ridiculous point that it was, like at one point we were just like, let's delete this because it's not. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing you can say. Like you know, it is what it is. I learned an important lesson in that whole ordeal. It was that it is not my responsibility to worry about how somebody else sees me or judges me. That's it's not my. I don't have to explain myself to anybody. Yeah. You're not a part of my stuff here. Mm-hmm. So now. Yeah. And I think that too, I think um, some readers have wondered why we haven't like made a public statement or like come out and said anything. It's like, we don't owe anybody an explanation. Like it doesn't matter what we're going to say. Those who support us will support us. And those who don't won't. 
Like what yeah. we say, I don't think it will change anyone's mind. And some people just don't even care to hear it. So why drag it back out? You know, why kick a dead horse? So, you know, for us, we're able to publish on all platforms. We're able to sell on our website. And that's something we still love and enjoy. And we've been really fortunate. We've had a ton of success selling from Eden Books, selling on Barnes & Noble, selling on Apple Books. Like we've had a ton of success there as well. And we're all very fortunate that our readers have followed us. Awesome. So we don't need Amazon. So we just let it go. Like we just don't want to fight anymore. You know, I think anybody who's ever been through a legal battle will empathize with this, will understand what we say. And when it's like you get to the point where you're just like, I'm done. Yeah. So that's a very long version of that one question. I'm so sorry. I was <laughs> like, here's like, the short answer. And then we go on for time. I know. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to like just go off on it. <laughs> <laughs> this is Lady DJs. If I were an author, I would only see, I would only see benefits for having, uh, for being on a podcast such as Read Me Romance because I would get my name out there. Have any authors told you no? And why do you think they wouldn't participate? We've had a couple authors tell us no. Um, Sometimes it's as simple as their writing schedule didn't work out. Like, you know, we've had authors that have committed and then like later come back and just say, I can't get it in this year. Like, I'm so sorry. There's no way I can do this. I'm stressed. And we're like, no harm. Like, no worries. Don't worry about it. You know, there's been a couple of authors that we've asked are just like, no, I don't think that's for me. And, and that's totally cool too. That's their prerogative. You know, whatever they want their author journey to be, that doesn't have to include us. I mean, we do this not there's no money in this okay it's like there is zero money in what we do on this podcast the only the ads you guys hear only pays for the production yeah it just pays to do audiobooks that's it so anything else we have to come out of pocket for we literally do this podcast because we love it like we love audiobooks we think you know readers should discover these authors like there's awesome authors out there that don't get a chance to have their shit played and if we have a platform where we can showcase authors like we want to definitely push that through so yeah that's all we do and, and if it doesn't work out it's totally cool so you know if if any author ever wants to be on the podcast all you gotta do is email me we will yeah. put you on the podcast it doesn't take a lot to be on here so this one is for Tessa. It says, I've become a huge fan since you were introduced to me on Read Me Romance. Heatstroke is one of my favorite books. I've reread it a lot because it's so hot. What kind of research is done? Is it just porn when writing these scenes? I'm going to answer for Tessa and say, yes, it's porn. Because <laughs> she's not here to disagree. Um, Alexa Riley, ever thought about writing a mail mail book? If you have, and I don't know about it, I'm so sorry. Please shout it out so I can download. Yes. We have thought of actually a menage where the men are into each other. Yeah, we've never written a straight male male. I don't think. No. No, we've never written a straight. I was going to say no. I don't think so. One of our forced books, Uh which is super nasty. Um, the men touch each other a little bit, but that's about it. Like one of them jerks the other one off, but it's more like he's just helping him out. Yeah, (laughs) it's so hot. I love that one. All right. This says, Lady DJs, what are your hard limits when it comes to writing? What topics would you absolutely not write? What would you like to write about in the future? I know one. You're probably not going to Go for it. We will never, or we've never went through it. We won't do the priest books. 
Oh, no, no. <laughs> uh-uh. I can't do any sort of like religious thing. I just, it's, it doesn't necessarily turn me on. And I just am, I, I'm not interested in that at all. Like organized religion in general, it's just a big turn off for me. So I wouldn't write in that. Anything with cheating would never write anything with cheating or where the hero dies. Never. That's not romance. So that's what we'd not write. What would you like to write about in the future? I actually thought somebody messaged us today on Instagram and said, why haven't you written a superhero book? As much as you love Captain America, why have you not written a book about him? And I thought today, I thought we need to write a superhero and then a villain and have them fight, and then they both get their book. <laughs> and then we could have... Oh, my God. I know, right? <laughs> I was like, that's... I was like, you're right. Why haven't we written a superhero book? So, oh you know, we should definitely do that. So let your brain twiddle that around. The last one's for Tessa, and it just says, how do you... Like, we write together, so it says, like, how does she write on her own? Does she bounce off? Tessa is a person, like, she can't write with anybody else. She is very much, like, in control, wants the story to be, like, her flow, everything. So I think for some authors, like, to to go from a single to a duo, like, I, I think that's impossible sometimes to go from writing by yourself to writing with someone to make that transition. But when you start with two, I think it's easier to maybe go either write your own or keep writing together. I think that's, you know, maybe it's easier to go back and forth. But I think it's hard once you find your own process and your own rhythm to break that. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine. I like uh, writing with someone because mm-hmm. there's a responsibility of getting your words done. <laughs> you want like someone looking over you. Yes. Yeah. You need that push. I work very well on a team. Mm-hmm. I do too. I think it's the thing where it's like improv where somebody's like always say yes and. You know, and I think that's why I work well writing with you where it's like, I'm like, oh, what about this idea? You know, like today I was like, well, how would this work? And you're like, yes. And what about this? And I'm like, that could work too. Like, great. You know, for so it's like, I always have somebody to bounce that thought off of because I think when I do it alone and I don't have you to answer like, hey, what about this or something? You know, it feels like I'm always second guessing myself. And you don't have somebody to, like, help you out of a corner. I text mm-hmm. you on Sunday, yeah. and I'm like, I'm yeah. stuck. <laughs> I was like, eat her pussy. <laughs> <laughs> that always works. <laughs> All right. It says, keep being amazing. I'm about to go make this day my biatch. <laughs> you have to say it like that. Lady listener, Audrey. That's awesome. Thanks, Audrey. That was a great email. Sorry, we um, kind of went off on it for you, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we've got final installment of Play the Hand You Were Dealt by um, MJ Granberry. And like I said earlier this week, she is giving away Play the Hand You Were Dealt, a signed paperback of it, some swag, and a $20 gift card. So make sure you follow everywhere to enter the giveaway. Check out all her stuff. I mentioned it on Tuesday too, but I just want to say one more time. Um, she has the final book in that series, Exquisitely Yours, will drop on July 27th. That's where one of the protagonists in this book, Connor, he was introduced previously in the other series. And that one is coming out July 27th. And if you want to go ahead and get an excerpt from it, you can grab it off Book and Main. So she's got it on there. So make sure you go check her out or check out her website at author M-J-J-A-Y Granberry. It's like cranberry with a G. So, yep. So we're going to send you in. Wait, 
Wait, yeah, no, we're going into, I was going to say, don't stop. We're going into the second installment. Okay. So we'll see you guys on the other side. Chapter four, Devin. I walk into the darkened control room and stand before the wall of monitors. This room is our heartbeat, a lifeline that supplies the most important thing to an organization like ours, information. Getting access to the local police department's camera network was child's play. Embedding our own surveillance was a little more complicated. Our players aren't exactly social butterflies. They don't seek the spotlight. The very nature of our business demands secrecy and knowing how to cover your tracks. Getting GPS devices in place almost took an act of Congress. Setting up video cameras in homes and offices and any other location they were known to frequent proved to be even harder. Somehow, we got it done. At the end of the day, all that data and information filters through this room and the people who man it. The players have been under surveillance for some time. Their movements and habits studied. We know when they come and go, whom they speak to, when they eat, and who they fuck. Their lives have become an open book for the reading. Glancing down at the gold face of the Mavado watch on my wrist, I confirm the time. Seven in the morning. I look at the quadrant of monitors that cover the hotel, and at that exact moment, the first player, true to form, struts through the doors of his casino. He's tall, wide-shouldered, muscular. His look is reminiscent of the estranged grandfather he eerily resembles, in both deceptively refinery and ruthlessness. Connor Rappaport, ladies and gentlemen, is the wild card. The one I know instinctively poses the greatest threat to the entire game, because unlike the others, he's an inherently skilled player with a killer's instinct. Connor has the intelligence to see what's coming. In this situation, he doesn't know what he's looking for yet, but it's only a matter of time before he figures it out. We must make our move before he does. Our timing needs to be perfect, spot on. If we advance prematurely, he'll know, and it'll give him a chance to mount a counteroffensive. As it stands, Connor is the only player whose life we haven't been able to completely infiltrate. His inner circle is tight, consisting only of his father, Avery Rappaport, business partner Jacob Johnson, and the snarky Brit Janine Williams, who guards his back like a rabid pit bull. His public persona is nowhere near his private face. He's a phantom that exists in a carefully constructed paper trail. Getting copies of his gaming and liquor licenses was child's play. Getting pictures and blueprints of his home and businesses were even easier. Almost too easy. It was what I couldn't find that posed a threat. There was no real birth certificate. The only one I could find was generated when he was 13, and oddly, it doesn't list a mother. A social security card has the same creation date of the birth certificate, which is off. 
It's like his life began at 13, and any ties to an earlier past simply doesn't exist. I've tried to follow the money, but it's a dead end. Legitimate money doesn't move without a trail, and Connor's money feels like old money. It has deep pockets with a seemingly endless supply, which has no origin. That best friend of his is one hell of a launderer, because Connor's financials are squeaky clean. There are no red flags or misappropriated funds. I can't find one deviation that indicates fraud or tampering. I feared it was a me thing, but the forensic accountant I hired came up with the exact same thing. Nothing. Contrary to the obvious facts, Chakal still insists that Connor Rappaport is dirty, and my instincts tell me he's right. Connor keeps regular business hours, leaving his house at seven on the dot every morning and arriving in the office no later than 7.30. He works hard and often plays harder. His bedroom door revolves with an endless stream of women, and he's a VIP in every underground club, smoke room, and restaurant where he's treated with a mix of reverence and fear. The Naked City, what most Las Vegans refer to as a red light district, bows to this man. I watch his progression across the monitors. He's a man with purpose. Every footfall across the casino floor is made with authority. It doesn't take long for him to arrive at the elevators that will take him to the executive level. My eyes travel to the next monitor as the doors to the elevator open and he steps out. The man's office is like Fort Knox. It was impossible to get cameras past the receptionist's desk, so I'm forced to watch his figure get smaller and smaller as he retreats to his office. When he gets to the door, he turns around and looks directly at the camera. With a smirk, he steps over the threshold and closes the door. He's aware we're here, that we're watching, and I'm about 40% sure He's closing in on Lee Milieu. Such a smug bastard. His arrogance is reminiscent of Carlisle Boudreau. I'm surprised he didn't blow a kiss and wave. He's digging, making connections that, given enough time and the right circumstances, will unravel everything that we're trying to build. Our planned success requires a stealthy approach and an element of surprise. Connor isn't surprised. He may not know what's coming, but he's braced for the storm, and now it'll be that much harder to knock him off course. My tenacious little friend is a very big reason why the timeline moved up. With Connor closeted away in his office, my attention shifts and zeroes and on the only other player currently awake and moving around. Hendrix Ferreira. She's perched on the edge of a stool at her breakfast bar in her penthouse, sipping from a teacup. Sun rays illuminate her copper-tinted skin, and in the serene setting, she almost seems ethereal. But looks can be deceiving, and in the case of Hendrix, they just might get you killed. The woman is a force. She clawed her way up from selling her body on the street corners to being the gatekeeper 
for the more carnal of pleasures, uniquely found in the illicit neighborhood of the Naked City. While the greater Las Vegas area teases enough to whet the appetite, Hendrix delivers on the promise. Her girls are top-notch, well-educated, beautiful, and from a wide array of backgrounds. From what I'm told, they're well-skilled in the bedroom. Hendrix is a renowned sex peddler with a clientele who could put Heidi Fleiss to shame. She doesn't just service the business world. She has presidents, cartel leaders, and various branches of law enforcement. If it all shakes out, Hendrix may be the perfect replacement for Josephine Richard, having already surpassed her network. Her unique talent is creating a neutral space where all these people can coexist peacefully. She doesn't run a traditional whorehouse. Hendrix has successfully combined the elegance of an exclusive gentleman's club with the fun and excitement found on a nightclub dance floor. Her events are themed, never in the same place twice, and require a password, usually an obscure word or phrase not used in everyday vernacular to get through the door. Once inside, Molly and cocaine flow freely to encourage the attendees to let go of their inhibitions. There are private rooms and group spaces for both singles and couples looking for something a little wilder than the traditional. For those looking for a guide on their debauched journey, they can have a professional escort, for a substantial fee, of course. Hendrix doesn't make a living on her back anymore. She's more of a broker now, catering to the highest bidder. Her job is to facilitate a client's sexual fantasy and ensure those dreams come true. If circumstances were different, I think she and I would have been fast friends. We're cut from the same cloth. Women in charge of our own destiny. It's a shame she must be pulled into the game. Truly, it is. It'll be a fight for her life. I'm rooting for you, Hendrix, I say. The morning moves by me at warp speed. A seemingly endless list of tasks dominates much of my day, entrenching me in the grind. But I make it back to the control room, in time to see the octuplets move into frame. Eight frames. I check my watch and it's 4.30 on the dot. The identical men all dressed in nondescript black suits stand in eight different locations, in front of eight doors. Simultaneously, each man lifts a hand and knocks. It's uncanny how similar they all appear. The moment is tense as I anticipate the response. Will the couriers be met with surprise? Anger? Confrontation? We're not dealing with Joe Schmo here. Each player was chosen because they're a heavy hitter, an apex predator at the top of a villainous ecosystem. Not one of the eight under the best circumstances would be considered harmless or docile. The first to open their doors are Connor and Hendrix. Connor looks past the courier dismissively. His sharp gaze searches the street beyond the man standing in front of him. He won't find a vehicle. Number one hitched a ride in the back of a UPS truck. 
the same truck that services his neighborhood daily and typically takes 35 minutes to deliver all packages. If number one gets it done right, that large brown vehicle will also serve as his exit ferry. Poor Connor will be none the wiser. His arrogance will keep him in his house. He'll opt for the finesse of checking cameras instead of physically following one. When he checks his home surveillance later, he won't see the direction number one came from nor the direction he leaves. We were able to successfully hack at least one of his systems. Gotcha, pendejo, I say, crossing my arms over my chest. My heart rate increases, a rapid flutter in my throat and behind the ribcage, because finally, we made a move he didn't see coming. If I wasn't fastidiously studying Connor's face, I might have missed the flash of anger and concern, but I see it. Now I know he's not indifferent. Nowhere near the Teflon Don image he likes to project. He's shaken because somehow we got to him. Maybe that'll knock him down a peg. Hendrix, on the other hand, smiles at number two. The charm that lulled her johns and made her a commodity in a city where beautiful women are commonplace and people don't bat an eye at the idea of paying for sex is on full display. Damn it, if number two doesn't notice. Keep your head in the game. Don't let that pretty face write a check you shouldn't be cashing. I say aloud, irritation coating each syllable with tired disdain. This process needs to flow smoothly. The last thing I want to deal with is an infatuated courier behaving in a manner that compromises us any more than Jacal's premature action. Sunglasses cover his eyes, but based on the tilt of his head, his gaze is running along the line of her slender arm, down to the hand resting over a silk-covered hip. Outwardly, he remains impassive. There is a subtle shift in her demeanor. The megawatt smile slips, dimming by a jewel. Her body, only seconds ago, appeared ripe with invitation, withers on the spot physically, bracing for the unknown. Justin Bishop and Marcus Brewer greet number three and number four at their doors with little sophistication and weapons drawn. The two represent a more brash approach to our common business. Bishop earned his stripes on the street corners. There wasn't a hustle he wouldn't run or job he wouldn't pull. His willingness and sheer determination made him a rising star in the naked city. When the opportunity presented itself, he staged a coup d'etat that caused ripples felt as far away as Monaco. Marcus is a phantom of the naked city a turf accountant and mathematical savant. He won the Fields Medal at 19 and solved the Poincare Conjecture Millennium Problem by 21. Genius doesn't give you direction, nor does it account for circumstances of birth. Marcus never had much, but he's smart enough to leverage his intelligence to gain more. Being a bookie, the money man to the money men gave him more than enough. As a matter of fact, it gave him so much he became a target to those looking for a quick come up. His name is known, but his location is not. 
Both men are known for solving their problems with violence before words. Thus, the drawn guns currently point at my couriers. Next up are Perry Watterson, Victor Hatt-Sistrunk, Cairo Scott, and Nicholas Bauer. Perry, a real Las Vegas showgirl, opens the door with gusto, strangely already dressed for tonight's performance. She wears a bra studded with crystals and a barely there scrap of satin that sits high on her narrow hips, exposing a dancer's long legs. She jerks back at the menacing veneer of number five, immediately moving to close the door. He stops the movement with a palm at the center of the door. Hatsistrunk is exactly where we knew he would be, behind his desk at the precinct. He barely glances up when he hears the knock on the door and doesn't acknowledge number six until his large hand, the one not holding the box, wraps knuckles against the edge of the desk. At that, Hat's head snaps up. His mouth is poised to issue a reprimand, but he stalls when he finally takes in the man standing in front of him. Hat looks calm, a confidence bolstered by his location at headquarters for Las Vegas Metropolitan Police and the fact that between the two four-story buildings and the center five-story detention facility, the complex has the artillery capabilities of a small country. His sense of safety is a red herring, bolstered by an idea that his brothers and fellow cops will keep him safe. In my experience, everyone has a price especially the officer working the front desk, who is going through his third divorce, already has two daughters in college, and a cocaine addiction. Five stacks were enough to get us entry into his secure office. Imagine what another 20 could do. Had hasn't quite grasped the fact that if we can get to him here, we can get to him anywhere. He'll understand soon enough. Ah, and there is the youngster, Cairo Scott. He came on the scene loud and flashy with the exuberance of youth and a strategy of experience far beyond his years. He's the youngest player, but in just two short years, he has established himself as a formidable foe. Cairo is a gambler. A man without roots or ties. He's willing to risk everything to win the world. True gambling, the life-changing kind, demands the risk-taker delve into a hidden darkness that resides in the heart and under the soul. Cairo does his best to appear nihilistic, but as quiet as he likes to keep it, his decisions are made with heart. It's love that has propelled him to the upper echelon, love that's his driving force, and ultimately it will be love that leads to his demise. He opens the door for number seven with no ease or attention to self-protection. His legendary cocksure grin is securely pasted onto his face. Cairo eyes number seven in his typical fashion, defiance tightening the line of his jaw and challenge narrowing his eyes. The last to open his door is Nicholas Bauer, the Australian transplant, and up until the arrival of Limelieu, the self-proclaimed leader of the Naked City. In the Naked City, Nicholas had a perfect window of opportunity. The FBI had rooted out and jailed most of his competitors, leaving a vacuum in the city. As the last man standing, he took up the mantle, 
but he's weak. An alligator mouth with a canary ass. His organization is messy. The only reason he's been able to retain power for as long as he has is because he has never received a direct threat. Until now. Of all my players, he's the least of my concerns. He yanks the door open, his protruding belly hanging over his pants, a piece of fried chicken raised partway to his mouth, and barks at number eight. Spittle flies from his mouth, and his pasty white skin turns an unappealing shade of apple red. Number eight, unfazed, doesn't pay attention to the man flailing in front of him. He looks down at his lapel, flicks a piece of food from the dark material, and simply waits. At exactly 4.37, without a word exchanged to each other or the people in front of them, the eight couriers move in unison as synced as a well-choreographed ballet. The boxed invitations are raised in offering. The delicately wrapped black package is nefarious against the vibrant blues and browns of the desert landscape. I stare at the screens, unblinking. Anxiety dialing up the tension that wasn't in the room mere seconds ago. Take the box. Take the box. Take the fucking box. The last year of work hinges on this moment. We can't have a game if the players refuse to play. What if they refuse the package or choose to close the door in the courier's faces? There are too many variables, and damn it all. I can't breathe waiting for the next move. Did time stop? I spare a brief glance down at the moving hands on the gold face of my watch. Time is as it always is, marching forward one torturous second at a time. My eyes jump nervously from screen to screen, waiting for just one of the eight players to move. Stress sweat starts to gather at my brow and base of my spine. No one is taking the box. I don't understand. Why is no one taking the box? The air cloisters in my lungs. And at the same time, my pulse becomes audible, a heavy thing I feel at the base of my throat. I'm wrapped. Every ounce of focus is directed toward the players. Pick it up. I silently urge. My eyes move from the first screen in the upper left corner down to the bottom right. Not one person in any of the frames is moving. They're unnaturally still, almost like someone hit the pause. This isn't a movie. There is no adjournment. What are you waiting for? I tap a French-tipped fingernail over the image of Connor Rappaport willing him to pick up the card and to take the first step in what is destined to be one hell of a journey. Maybe battle is a better adjective to describe the assault we plan to unleash. Extending a slender, well-manicured hand, Perry Watterson is the first to accept, much to my surprise, with an unasked question vivid on her beautiful face. Good on you, girl. I whisper, finding myself smiling. The tension bunching my shoulders eases just a couple of degrees. Within seconds, as each of the seven other players all accept the invitations, 
I finally take a shuddering breath. Halfway there, I whisper. My focus still intent on the screens because there's more. It's not enough for them to accept the package. They have to open it. The octuplets are immobile. Their presence looms over the invitees as they gesture to the boxes, and their mouths form one word. Open. I easily read the word on their lips. That request causes another round of pauses from the eight players. A couple turn the boxes in their hands, feeling its weight, studying the crisp paper and intricate bow, looking for... I'm not sure what they're looking for. The wick from a stick of dynamite, perhaps? Others place their focus on the man in front of them rather than the item in their hands. Connor is the only one who hasn't even glanced at the box. His gaze skips over the man in front of him and searches the landscape. He's looking for the puppet master, the person pulling the strings, but he won't find us. Not this time, anyway. Connor finally looks down and his hands tighten ever so slightly. He makes quick work on tying the bow, crushing the material in his hand and stuffing it in his pants pocket. He doesn't rip the wrapping. Instead, he gingerly peels back the corners and unwraps the paper with precision. He opens the box and picks up the playing card. It's the Ace of Spades, which unknowingly activates the tracking sequence. Connor holds it between his index finger and thumb. He flips it over to study the intricate design on the back, frowning at what he finds. Or maybe he's upset at what he didn't find. His eyes narrow as he continues to stare at the card. From my position in front of a monitor on the other side of the valley, his intensity is tangible. It's fascinating, really. He's so controlled, so precise. Even in the face of uncertainty, Connor Rappaport is unflappable, studying the card for long minutes before he sets it gently back in the box. Next, he raises the invitation and reads it over. He then sets it back into the box, too. Without ever acknowledging the man in front of him, he takes a step back and closes the door. One down, seven to go. Nicholas Bauer rips into his package, tossing the bow God knows where and shreds the paper. His sausage fingers rifle through the box, taking out the playing card and invitation before delightedly turning the box over, shaking it until the last remnants of crinkled black filler paper litter the ground. The black is harsh against the pale skin of his naked feet. It reminds me of the patterned gunpowder leaves when the barrel is close to the skin, stark and messy. Like a disgruntled toddler, Nicholas tosses the box to the ground. His face is beat red with frustration and anger as he yells at the unaffected number eight, who surreptitiously turns on his heel and strolls back to the street. The other six players are not nearly as entertaining. Without fuss or complaint, they intuitively give in to the courier's request and open their respective boxes. Fingers are tentative. I start, chests noticeably rise in a faster rhythm. Each person moves with an innate biological instinct that has no doubt helped them survive, and in some instances, flourish in circumstances that would break others. These are not stupid people. 
If they were, formulating this game, constructing layer upon layer to strip these players down to their baser selves would be a pointless use of time. I don't do pointless. I don't waste my time or efforts. Ever. These players represent the superior stratum of this city's clandestine world, a gritty underbelly that hides in plain sight just off the Las Vegas Strip beneath all that glitter and glam. Underestimating their intelligence, ruthlessness, and the resilience that took them from what can only be described as horrid circumstances to the top is not only dangerous, but deadly. All eight players are movers, and out of necessity, they became creators. The type of people who make episodic waves during a low tide, a force of nature that others have no choice but to bend to. But I don't bend, nor do I bow. They have no idea what's coming, but they will soon enough. With everyone now back in their homes and the octuplets dispersed and headed out of the city, I take a breath that isn't tinged with anticipation or worry. My hands wrap around the top edge of the room's only seat, located at the desk in front of the rows of monitors. And then... I don't sit as much as collapse into it. Leaning forward, I stretch to reach the corner edge of the table where my signature black Gucci bag rests. Silently, it glides across the surface. When I reach in, I pull a sleek silver laptop out of its case and log on. Almost immediately, a topographic map of Las Vegas pops up. A playing card icon that corresponds with a card given and activated by each of the players shows their location on the map. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That can't be right. I count them again. Only seven. I'd watched all eight players pick up their respective cards. King of Clubs is right there. The Jack of Diamonds, Queen of Hearts, and Joker are all on the move, but easily identifiable above a jacket line formed on the map by their travel. The Ten of Hearts, the Wild Deuce, and the King of Diamonds hadn't moved from their initial location. I'm missing the Ace of Spades. Mierda. I say aloud, the flat edge of my fist banging the desk. My frustration needs an audible expression because somehow... Connor Rappaport just fell off the grid. Somehow, in less than an hour, he discovered the bile tracker activated at the mere touch of the card with his thumb and disabled it. I massaged my temples and closed my eyes. Now I need to tell. Tell me what, darling? Forcing my eyes open, I turn in my seat to find a shadowed figure standing in the doorway. His presence isn't alarming. But his softly spoken question is a menace disguising itself as nonchalance. I know better. We both know better. I stare in the general vicinity of his eyes, take a fortifying breath, and let him know. We have a problem. Chapter 5 Devin Darling. You're jumping around like a cat on a hot tin roof. Jacal interrupts the worried lap I'm trekking around the poker table. I stop mid-stride, looking in the direction of his voice, but he's not across the room. He's directly behind me. 
I hate how quiet he is. It makes no sense for such a large man to barely stir the air when he moves. I sigh when his long arms curl around me from behind, drawing me into a strong sculpted chest. Calm down, he draws, placing a soft kiss at the base of my neck. I try to do as he asks, dropping my chin down to my chest to take a deep breath. But when I exhale, it's shaky. I take another breath, but I can't fill my lungs. It almost feels like a boa constrictor coiled around my body. And every time I let air out, my lungs get tighter and tighter. Watching you fret and fuss over a little bit of nothing is. It's hard, David. I stiffen at the use of my given name. Because since the moment we met, I've been darling or sugar. His endearments for me made sweeter by his dawdling accent and usually dark and dirty intent. Devin is rarely spoken between us unless you count the urgent murmurs in intimate spaces or the sexy moments when words, more than his actions, demand my undivided attention. During those times, his words are carefully chosen and spoken with power, a seductive seg into heat and passion. Right now, instead of heat, there's worry. Rightfully so, because I'm worried, and he should be too. There are variables at play that fall outside of our contingencies, and his insistence that we adhere to the old ways, issuing challenge to prospective partners, locating not just a replacement for existing members, but battle-tested and tried members that have been groomed in the life. We came to Las Vegas for a fresh start. Sure, Chakal needed to complete some unfinished business, but the Naked City is the perfect place to carve out a legacy untainted by the convictions of the elders. New Orleans was dying right next to the old men and women that used to run it, and Vegas was a veritable smorgasbord primed for the taking. Everything was in place and going smoothly enough when we arrived in this goddamn desert. But then, we crossed paths with Connor Rappaport. In the three days since the invitations have been delivered, he's turned the game on its head. Tell me if you need to change trajectory. I can do a lot of things. But once they walk through that door, there is no turning back. We'll have to stay the course. Can you do it? For you, I say, searching his gaze. I will. I glance at the digital clock mounted to the wall between two large bay windows. Who in their right mind puts bay windows at the front of a house in the middle of the desert? Even at dusk, the final rays of the sun wash the room in a pinkish-orange light that heats the air and melts my skin. From where I stand... I have a clear view of the circular driveway, the surprisingly green sprawling lawn that takes gallons of water and full landscaping to maintain its luster, and the street just beyond the ornamental fence at the edge of the property. Right on time, a caravan of eight white Range Rovers rounds the corner. They move down the private street with a quiet authority and stealth typically reserved for spy movies, or assassination attempts. 
I can't see the drivers or passengers through the dark-tinted windows, but I don't need to see them to know that in less than two minutes, I will be face-to-face with tonight's esteemed guest. As the vehicles approach the front door, I step beyond the threshold, leaving the space behind visible beyond the door. I school my face into a look of indifference and nonchalance. It's an expression I've mastered after years in courtrooms and across from defendants at depositions. The vehicles roll to a slow stop, one stack behind the other, so innocuous against the backdrop of modern suburbia and the intentions for tonight. Connor fucking Rappaport is the first to open his door. No surprise there. What little I've been able to dig up on him tells me he's a calculated risk taker, oddly intuitive and quick to act. He doesn't wait for the chauffeur or check his surroundings before he approaches me. Under his watchful gaze, I smooth the fitted skirt over my thighs, breathing a little easier when my hand soothed down the thick seam grazing the knife hidden under the stitches and strapped to the top of my thigh. Good evening, I say, coolly extending a hand. You may call me Bravo. I will be your host for the evening. Connor arches his eyebrow in question at my introduction before grasping my hand. Con, I know who you are, I respond quickly. The Ace of Spades. Do you have your card as admittance? A second eyebrow joins the first in surprise or irritation, maybe surprised irritation. I'm not sure if it's in response to the request to use my last name, Bravo, the situation, or my refusal to allow him to tell me his name. His crinkled forehead and raised brows are the only outward reaction as his hand grasps mine, and his intelligent hazel eyes assess me. He drops our connected hands and pulls the card from an inner pocket of his sports coat, He extends it toward me between his thumb and forefinger. Shaking my head, I say, keep it. You'll need it for the game. With a terse nod, he tucks the card back in place, settling into stillness next to me. A wolf in sheep's clothing. The other players wait for the chauffeurs to round the front of the SUVs to summarily open their doors. Seven players exit the vehicles at varying rates. Cairo Scott jumps out, a thin black t-shirt with the letters G-O-A-T, spelled in metallic gold, blazed across his chest. His feet are planted wide apart, arms bent and hands throwing up deuces. You wanted the kid? He says with a brashness of youth. I'm here. What's good? That statement is directed at Connor, who is simply standing but still exudes a coiled power and control this young man recognizes as dominant. If I had time for that type of primitive alpha male preening, then this situation might be cute. I say might, because even on the best of days, I have little to no tolerance for dick measuring. Ah, and here's the king of clubs, I say loudly drawing his attention to me. What? His brow furrows with uncertainty. King of clubs, sir. You were given this card as admittance to the game, were you not? I tilt my head when it takes longer than a couple of seconds for him to respond. 
Oh, he says, shoving a hand into the front pocket of his jeans, pulling out his card. Ah, you actually need me to. I shake my head. I don't need anything at this moment. I have seen your card, and for now, that's enough. But I want to make it clear that you were given an explicit list of instructions, one of which was no names. But I didn't say. Lucky for you, you didn't. I stayed matter-of-factly. Turning my head to the next player, I see Miss Perry Watterson as she steps out of her SUV, all legs and skin and high-heeled shoes. Her face expertly made up to dramatically play up the beauty of her blue eyes and her dancer's body. Long and delicately muscled, she's on full display wrapped in a gold sequin dress that just barely touches the top of her thighs. It looks like I'm at the right place. She all but pursed to Cairo Scott before flicking her gaze over me and Connor, who still stands wholly unaffected on my left side. Indeed, I respond, stepping in front of the men. The Ten of Hearts, I presume. When she realizes that neither man is running the show, she packs the simpering sex kitten away and squares her shoulders. The girl is sharp. I give her that much. She opens a small clutch expertly sequined to match her dress and withdraws the card. This is admittance, right? Why are we all standing outside? You, I say, emphasizing the word, are standing here because I say stand here. And when I say move, I expect you to move. I've seen your card. Now, I motion to the left. Please step to the side. And without further ado, she does. Next out of their vehicles are Hendrix Ferreira and Marcus Brewer, the madam and the hustler. Unlike Perry, Hendrix is casually dressed. Tight jeans hug the length of her legs and a fitted t-shirt molds to the curves of her upper body. I don't see the switchblade she's known to carry, but I know it's tucked neatly somewhere and ready to be used. Marcus Brewer, on the other hand, is suited and booted. He's wearing a black shirt with a tailored black suit. Dark sunglasses cover his deep brown eyes. With crisp movements, he pulls first one sleeve and then the other to make sure his shirt cuffs are covered. And with a smirk, he joins the group. Unlike the juvenile male posturing of moments ago with Cairo Scott, Marcus quietly taking us all in. And here we have the Queen of Hearts. I say, extending a hand toward Hendrix, who stealthily attempts to pass me the card. Hold on to that. You will need it later. I whisper, still liking this woman's style and truly saddened to meet under these circumstances. And the king of spades. Welcome to you both. We're about ready to begin, just waiting on three more. Hendrix silently inclines her head in greeting at the group, and Marcus, ever the con, smooshes. I look forward to an interesting night, he says, removing the darkened sunglasses to reveal his eyes. If I had known there wasn't a dress code, Perry says with a catty grin to Hendrix, drawing all the male gazes, I wouldn't have bothered either. She looks around at the men gathered expectantly. When no one laughs or comments, her bravado wanes. Hendrix's unruffled gaze sweeps Perry starting at her glossy red hair and ending at the painted pink nail, peeking out of the open-toed shoe. 
She looks unimpressed. Sweetheart, from where I'm standing, you're a mediocre stripper at two in the morning. Hendrix darkly chuckles. A wannabe bad girl waiting for her pimp in the back alley, stupidly handing over the money you've earned for the night before he drives you home, stealing because it's stealing when a man doesn't pay for what you're selling. The only thing you have of value. You didn't ask, but I'll give you this one for free. Women aren't your enemy. Men don't actually pay for sex, and if the only thing you have to offer is your body, you? She stops talking to wave a hand in front of Perry's body, a brittle smile pulling at the corners of her mouth. Have nothing at all. Perry stares at Hendrix with wide blinking eyes. Her mouth opens, and then she thinks better and closes it. An embarrassed flush creeps up the skin of her sternum, visible in the deep V of her shimmering dress and peaks bright red in her cheeks as she diverts her eyes. Damn. Cairo verbalizes what I'm sure most of us are thinking. That was hot. The truth from a woman too old to play games and too tired to entertain nonsense. Game recognizes game. When it comes to women, there isn't a game I haven't played. Hendrix says with a flirty wink. Victor had cis-drunk, Justin Bishop and Nicholas Bauer walked toward our group from SUVs located at the tail end of the caravan. From the corner of my eye, I catch Connor and Hendricks stiffen upon seeing Hatz's drunk. I knew Hat and Hendricks had a professional relationship, but Connor. Once again, I'm thrown off by the things I don't know and can't find. Even with the best investigators money can buy, Connor Rappaport's life is veiled in mystery and conjecture. Having the chief of police in his pocket or on his payroll is vital information. Who's in charge here? Had asked in a low voice. Good evening. I say light and professional. Stepping forward with the smile I typically reserve for opening remarks in the courtroom, I extend my hand. The name is Bravo. I will be your host for tonight's festivities. Bravo? That a first or a last name? He demands, shaking my hand with a little more force than necessary while scrutinizing my features. I don't have the strength in my hand to squeeze back with the same aggression, but I have the control not to wince. Men like Hat take that kind of reaction as a sign of weakness. I've dealt with his type plenty in the military when I served in the Judge Advocate General's Corp, also known as Military Lawyers or JAGs. The first thing I learned as a woman operating primarily in a man's world is that she, with the best poker face, wins. The second was, you hit me. I hit back harder. Hat is uncomfortably close to pushing that button that deadens feelings and emotions and civilized reasonable responses. I don't back down when threatened. I don't care how subtle. And I guarantee he won't see me coming. Does it matter? I ask, attempting to remove my hand from his grip, only to have him tighten the hold. I'd say it does, since I was dragged across town to a house so far off the beaten path that I don't have cell coverage. I start to speak, but he interrupts. Don't bother denying it. I checked when I was in the truck. Oh. I give him big, unsuspecting eyes. Did you think I was going to deny it? His inky eyebrows come down in a deep frown. The vehicles you arrived in, the house you'll be entering, and the surrounding area in a three-mile radius has been equipped with cell phone jammers. I need your undivided attention. 
How can I have that with phones interrupting? I'm sorry. Did you say a three-mile radius? That's illegal. How could you possibly do something like that without the police realizing? Wasn't as hard as you'd think. I answer, attempting to pull my hand again, and this time he releases it. I believe you're the Jack of Diamonds, are you not? I ask, folding my hands in front of my chest. Ahem. He clears his throat before extending the card. Uh, yeah, here it is. That is yours, but it's the admittance through the door. I motion behind me. Oh, and Jack, I say, my smile once again in place. You ever attempt to physically intimidate me again? You'll walk away with one hand, understood. He gives me a quick nod, probably unused to having a woman speak to him with the same flippant audacity he exhibits. Justin Bishop and Nicholas Bauer, having heard my conversation with Hat, raise their cards. Nicholas, the big joker, and Justin, the deuce of spades, offer their cards up as their entry. Welcome, gentlemen. Your arrival rounds out our little party. So, we can go ahead and begin. Before we move inside, let me set some ground rules so there are no surprises and no mistakes. That gets their attention. Eight pairs of eyes all turn in my direction. I only have three rules. Number one, I hold up my left index finger. No names although I'm aware that some of you are already acquainted. Number two, I raise my middle finger to meet the first. The discussion that takes place will remain between the walls and the people in attendance. Inviting outsiders will get messy, and I hate messy. And number three, I smile wiggling three fingers. We're not here for a discussion. We're here to play a game. With that last statement, I walk over the threshold into a space that resembles a casino floor, with one major exception, the clock hanging on the wall. Cameras are affixed in the corners to record every move. A large green felt-covered poker table dominates the center of the room. Dark leather chairs, accented with grommets, sit around the circumference arranged far enough so each player's hand will be protected. A single deck of cards rests alone in the center. A scantily clad cocktail waitress waits expectantly with a tray in her hands next to a fully stocked bar and bartender. There is even soft music beating through speakers to add a little ambiance. Please, have a seat, I say, waving in the direction of the table. Each person takes in the room with a mixed expression of interest and trepidation and tentative movements. Nicholas Bauer walks by the poker table, inspecting, scrutinizing. This is ridiculous. The invitation, the card, the whole elaborate charade. This little girl is here by herself. He turns to Connor. You're a big man. He slaps his hand on the back of a chair. And I'm a big man. No doubt we could take her. He turns, looking for a like-minded nod or a gesture from the other players, when Connor doesn't immediately jump to assist. Is that what he thinks? I finger the beautiful four-inch ornate golden greenwood necklace that rests between my breasts, the housing for a thin stiletto knife.
Are we here already, Joker? I say on an exhale, subtly detaching the lever that holds the knife in place. My name is Nicholas, Nicholas Bauer. I'm not afraid to say it. What can you do to me, hmm? His beady brown eyes rake my body. The other players freeze where they stand, the already heightened tension increasing. Nothing. That's what you'll do, nothing. He turns his back on me, speaking to the others. I showed up today, as I'm sure all of you did, because I received an invitation complete with this stupid card and a fancy letter stating there is a new player in town who might impact my business. Me, the king, not the joker of the naked city. Whatever they're offering you, I will give you more. Help me get rid of... Silently, I step behind him, knife to the ready, poised to attack. I move with lightning speed, plunging the knife deep into the soft tissue of his neck, perforating the carotid artery. It's not like in the movies where people scream and thrash. It's inaudible, a disbelieving shock to the system. His meaty hands come up to squeeze his throat, attempting to stop the blood flow, but it's too late. Nicholas sways on his feet, severe blood loss making him faint within seconds. In less than a minute, he drops to his knees and tips over in a face plant on the floor. His chest rises and falls with strangled breaths as he tries unsuccessfully to breathe past the blood filling his throat. I lower on my haunches and lean over his body, wiping my knife clean on the back of his expensive jacket before returning it to the sheath around my neck. Shaking my head, I say. I don't like when people break the rules, and I especially don't like being threatened. From my position crouched on the floor, I look up at the other seven players before pushing to my feet. Anyone else want to try? No one says a word. I didn't really think they would, but it never hurts to ask. Two loyal men that followed us from New Orleans come into the room from a side door. Their faces are covered with balaclavas, leaving their eyes and mouths visible. They were obviously monitoring the cameras in the video room. They grab him by the hands and feet and, without acknowledging the other players, they lift him up and exit the same way they came with his body in tow. I glance at the camera and I can almost feel my man on the other side of the lens, pacing back and forth with anger and concern. My death toll wasn't supposed to rise today. But things happen, and sometimes death is unavoidable. That's code. Chakal taught me the language and unwritten law that has governed underground organizations, probably since Judas accepted his 30 pieces of silver. In this business, dogs eat dogs and mercy makes you weak. It is also code to never show fear, to act. It is better to ask forgiveness than to seek permission. Chakal will be proud. Chapter 6 Devon Now seated at the table with one chair empty, I glance around at the group. I can only imagine the questions going through your heads right now. So I'll start at the beginning. Hopefully, by the time I get to the end, I will have addressed all of your concerns. I take another long pause, letting them absorb my words. 
My name is Bravo, and I work for an organization looking for new members or leaders, if you prefer. Each of you were invited this evening out of respect for how you run your current operations and because your expertise will be extremely useful as we expand to the West Coast. Everyone sits a little straighter. The bewildered eyes of moments before slowly calm by increments. What is the name of this organization you represent? Connor asks. Le Milieu, or The Middle, I interpret for those who don't understand. We're a New Orleans-based consortium that runs the city's more questionable businesses. And by questionable, you mean. Marcus leans forward on his elbows, hands steepled at his mouth. Drugs, prostitution, racketeering, money laundering. Any and everything that takes place in the city that doesn't require a business license to operate. Cairo sits back in his chair, blowing out a breath. So why the elaborate game? Why are we not using our names? Hendrick's eyes involuntarily flicked to Hat's sistrunk. I know at least two of you. Hat meets her gaze head on. Who do you know? Perry's voice is small, and her body language reflects her fear. I know how you know me, Hendrix begins. But who else at this table rolls in our world? I don't know anyone else but you. Her eyes shift to those in attendance. When you work in law enforcement, you get to know people from all walks of life. Connor doesn't address or even acknowledge Hat's proclamation. The man I work for, the leader of Lee Milieu, Chacal, only wanted five of you. I don't mention he needs them to replace members. Even now, we're tracking down to kill. Where would that information get us? I have convinced him we actually need six, which still leaves us with one too many. The bylaws of this organization were established long before anyone present was born. A seat is earned at the table through a game of chance. I wrap my knuckles on the inside of the empty white frames, waiting to be filled with cards. I smile and shrug. In honor of our new city, we chose poker. Poetic, no? The cocktail waitress appears at my side, pin poised above a white notepad, to take my drink order. She moves around the table, gathering orders before retreating to the bar stationed on the other side of the room. In the past, members of Le Milieu were identified by a golden chit or coin. I say easily flowing back into our conversation. For this new chapter, we decided to issue cards. If you look carefully at the design on the back, you might be able to make out the circle with the fleur-de-lis and snarling jackal in the center. They each take out their cards, turning them over to study the symbol embedded in the intricate pattern. So, what exactly is your function? Justin questions. Good question. Not one I'm willing to answer, but good nonetheless. That's a complicated answer. I do many things. Tonight, I'm playing dealer and host to this party. That was a non-answer, Connor flatly states. And what exactly do you do? I volley back. I, uh, work in the casino industry. Run a hotel. He says after a long beat. Hmm. Is that right? Doing what, exactly? I ask, giving him curious eyes, because we both know he won't go into the intricacies of running drugs and weapons, 
how those drugs are funneled into the day and nightclubs on his property and ferried out to partygoers by pretty scantily clad girls on his payroll. We best not mention how he funded half the startup capital for a casino, which equates to close to half a billion dollars. Connor comes from money, but it's not that kind of money. His casino is one big washing machine he uses to clean his very dirty money. We both understand the danger that comes with unnecessary people knowing the intricacies of your business. When his jaw clenches, drops his eyes, and refuses to say anything else, I say, exactly. The cocktail waitress returns, setting napkins and drinks in front of the players before retreating to her station. No one wants to be the first to take a sip probably afraid it's been poisoned. Which is foolish. If we wanted them dead, why would we go through the drawn-out process of poisoning? I raise the glass to my lips, and I can almost hear the collective inhale as they all wait for me to swallow. When I don't foam at the mouth or keel over, the group once again relaxes, but no one mirrors my actions. Pity. Alcohol might make this pill a little easier to swallow. Perry, still visibly shaken, twists the cap on her water bottle, squeezing the plastic a little too hard and spilling the liquid on Cairo. Sorry. She takes her napkin, reaching to dab the liquid in his lap. I'm normally more coordinated than that. Oh, you're coordinated. Don't let nobody tell you different. He winks. That's when she finally realizes she's been stroking a napkin over his crotch. Perry looks up at him with wide eyes and red, flushed cheeks. Forcefully, she yanks her hand back, inadvertently jabbing one perfectly sculpted fingernail into her lip. Poor girl. So, how is this supposed to go? Justin asks, getting things back on track. You said we have to win a game of chance. What do we do? Play hand after hand of poker until we're each eliminated. That part is actually up to you. With the untimely demise of Nicholas, things have been made significantly easier. You have a couple of choices. If you think Le Milieu is an organization you want to join, that makes it that much easier. We already have a leader, so we only need six. There is no need for each of you to play the game if everyone wants to join, but you will need to choose one to take the challenge for all, I say, pausing for effect. For those that don't want to join, you may go the way of Nicholas. They all start talking at once in a cacophony of sound that overtakes the table. Arms flail, hands hit the tabletop, spilling untouched drinks. The tension that had been simmering just below a boil erupts in grand style. I haven't taken orders in a long time, Hendrick says angrily. And I don't plan on starting again. Who is this boss you work for again? Why isn't he here? We aren't asking you to take orders. We're inviting you to join us, I say in a low voice. If they want to hear what I have to say, they'll have to take it down a decibel or two. I'm sorry, what was that? Hendrix asks, leaning forward. Her head tilts in my direction as she pushes thick corkscrew curls back, exposing her ear. Marcus jumps in before I can answer, shaking his finger in the general vicinity of my face. If he were any closer, he'd draw back a nub. Who is we? The only person sitting here is you. The side door opens and in comes Magnus Thibodeau, a towering figure at six foot three, 
He's neatly dressed in a tan linen suit, typically worn in more humid weather. The reddish-brown skin of his face has finally healed after the situation in Louisiana a little over two and a half months ago, and his gait is even for a man of his age. I school my features, careful not to show my surprise to the other players. Magnus's appearance is... unexpected. The organizational structure of Le Milieu requires seven members. There can be no ties. Ironically, there is no middle road. The scales of illegality must swing one way or the other. Our paradigm requires at least six of the people at this table buy in and submit to the challenge of the game. This moment of transition hinges on the actions of the older generation. People like Carlisle and Josephine need to gracefully hand over the reins, and the players are required to show their true grit. Accepting the seat doesn't complete the challenge. They have to be able to hold it under a multitude of provocations. I can't tell if Magnus's arrival is a knee-jerk reaction to no longer having a seat at the table, doubt in my ability to do the necessary, or a true attempt to help his grandson. Melma, what are you playing at now? Magnus strolls to stand directly behind my seat, resting a hand on my shoulder. Good evening, y'all. My name is Magnus Thibodeau. I'm a founding member and the current leader of Les Milieux. It is wonderful to make all of your acquaintance. Ah, so that's his angle. Create a red herring. Magnus isn't running any more than I am. He pauses to clear his throat. Please forgive our ostentatious display. I come from a different place in a different era where tradition is observed, and customs mean something. I've never heard of this custom, Justin says. I feel Magnus's shrug, even though I can't see it. Sure you have. Everyone in this room is familiar with the mafia, also known as independent contractors working under the same banner. They pay a fee to utilize specified services and have access to the best resources. That's what we're offering you. Take you, darling. Hendricks nails him with a disgruntled look. You want to be a madam? Continue to have sex parties and supply your customers with booze and drugs. You won't have to worry about paying him anymore. I look toward Hat, who balls his fist on the table. You pay me one solid fee, and you'll have drugs and protection for a lower cost. Who wouldn't want to save money? Not one person at the table denies it. We could have gone to a dozen other cities anywhere around the country. Las Vegas, that area y'all call the Naked City, is primed to make billions. I can show you how to do it. But there's seven of us. She said you only needed six. Perry says, some of the strength returning to her voice. Aren't you as pretty as a blue jay singing at sunrise on a Sunday morning? If nothing else, Magnus is magnetic. I think it might be his superpower. I don't have to turn around to picture his gaze sweeping Perry's features, an inky brow rising with appreciation as his eyes dip down her body. A warm smile spreads across her face, confirming that his charm has transcended her fear as she stammers. Uh, thanks? I mean, thank you. There are indeed seven of you, which is a conundrum. One of you will have to fight for his or her place among us. We can play the game to decide who or one of you 
I'll volunteer. Connor responds. Every eye at the table turns in his direction, a grudging respect in almost every gaze. And who are you, son? Magnus draws. Connor Rappaport, he says, pushing to his feet. You sure you know what you're signing up for? Not at all. He replies with a deep chuckle. The southern Louisiana accent he's trained out of his voice tinges the last word. But I'm never scared to play the game, and to date, I've never lost. Let's just say. He extends his hand to Magnus, but his gaze stays locked on me, a subtle verdant, comprised of seafoam green with specks of amber and streaks of gray. In the low light, their brilliance is smothered, banked under the weight of emotions too dense to examine and too turbulent to name. I lack my own he adds with raw conviction. The long-forgotten drawl of his New Orleans roots clashing with the well-mannered urban facade. Hazel eyes sweep down my face, dipping past my neck and chest until the tabletop obstructs his path. A straight row of white teeth sinks into his plush-bottom lip, obscenely pulling the corner into his mouth. As his eyes come back up to mine and he winks, turning his gaze back to the man still clasping his hand. You know... You remind me very much of someone I used to know, Magnus says. Is that right? Connor asks, dropping his hand. A good man? Not at all, son. <laughs> Is that right? Well, even bad men do good things. Connor replies with a shrug of his shoulders. Turning his gaze back to me, he asks, Am I done here? Long arms cross over his broad chest and his head tilts ever so slight as he waits for my response. For the time being, I say pointedly, sure, to meet his gaze so he sees that I'm not buying the flirtatious act. The man is undeniably handsome. A sort of unrefined sensuality clings to the very air around him. But it's a veneer a pretty shell used to placate his enemies and conceal his cunning. Peekaboo, I see you, Connor Rappaport. I'm going to assume I should expect you sometime later with the parameters, he asks, buttoning his suit coat as he walks toward the door. Indeed. My God, that man is sexy. Hendrix mumbles under her breath and... Though I'd never say the words out loud, I have to agree. Chapter 7 Chacal My mind keeps revisiting that cocky bastard walking out the door. Completely composed, long strides smooth and unbothered. A cocky grin pulling at the corners of his lips when he opened the door to the back seat of the Range Rover, and he was driven away. Connor Rappaport wasn't older than 13 or 14 years old when we first crossed paths. Even at that tender age and working with grown men, he had a self-confidence and an unwavering belief in his abilities. I had spent months luring him, getting him to a place where I thought I had him cornered. But he walked away unscathed. His mother, on the other hand, unfortunately paid the price. At one time, Connor's mother, Genevieve Boudreau, and I were an item. Many moons ago, when I was no more than 16 years old, 
I love that woman with a juvenile obsession of a young man untried and narrowly tested. Her father wore a crown and my grandfather was his right hand. We were destined to do big things. Great things. Back then I thought she'd eventually wear my ring and have my children. But she proved to be weak. Chasing ridiculous dreams like being a Las Vegas showgirl. Didn't even make it out there two years before she showed up back in New Orleans, used up and pregnant with a bastard son. Sometimes I wonder if my life would have been different. Less violent, less tumultuous, if I'd settled down with Genevieve. Who knows the trajectory my life would have taken. If Connor had been mine, if events had unfolded differently, maybe I'd still be home in the bayou. The transition of power, just that, a transition. Instead of this war. They say hindsight is twenty-twenty, But my past is blurry. Something died in me as a child the day I found my father's lifeless body on the kitchen floor and an even bigger chunk dissolved when all the clues pointed to Carlisle Boudreaux, a man my father trusted, a man he loved as a brother. My acceptance of his guilt became an insidious belief, one that would shape the man I would become, a man of vengeance and power, someone unafraid and driven. Any emotion I had for Genevieve feigned or real evaporated, until all I saw in her was a means to end her father. The need for revenge consumed me. It still consumes me. I imagine it will be the force behind my decisions and the burden I bear until my father is avenged, until the Thibodeaux stand atop the heap comprised of the bones of our enemies. That's the image I hold. Me, my family, our name on top. Some say revenge is a dish best served cold. I don't know much about that. In my experience, vengeance is scorching. The eternal flame. The sweltering validation required to go after Genevieve's son. The torrid justification for taking her life. It drives me. Keeps me focused and sharp. But even with innumerable amounts of focused action and patience... Genevieve's son has proven to be the bane that sits deep in my crawl. I find his very existence offensive. Compound that with the fact that he isn't merely existing, but flourishing where he should have withered and died on the vine. And I can barely contain the rage blistering that raw spirit of vengeance. I cut off that line of thinking. Bring myself back to the present to the naked woman in my arms riding with the expertise of a cowgirl aiming for the last barrel. Oh, darling. Damn, you know how to work that pussy. Ride me, sugar. Make your man explode. I moan, cupping both breasts in my hands while leaning forward to suck her nipples. Her hips find a deeper rhythm. She reaches a hand between us, fingering our connection, gathering moisture on her fingers to thrum a clit. Her pussy clamps down on my length, sweet pulses milking every last drop. Devon is the anchor. I get lost in this woman. The way she killed that man without blinking for me is a kind of love I didn't know existed before. 
and I doubt I'll ever experience anything like it outside of her. Us. Again. It's four in the morning, actually six if I were in New Orleans, when I slip my arm from under Devon's neck. She rouses slightly, peering at me through barely open eyes. Everything okay? She asks groggily. Seba. I lean down to place a kiss on her lips. Go back to sleep. Her eyes drift shut as she whispers, I love you, my soul. I love you too, I say, grabbing my sleep pants from the wrinkled pile of clothes forgotten at the foot of the bed. I slip them on and step out my bedroom, gently closing the door behind me. Even from upstairs, I smell the chicory coffee my grandfather already has brewing. Grandfather doesn't look surprised when I make an appearance. He flicks a quick gaze to me before turning back to the red mixing bowl in front of him. Son, when you have company in the house, it's considered impolite to keep them awake till all hours with headboards banging on the wall. His reprimand comes with a smile and knowing look. <laughs> what can I say, Pop? I got an envie for my woman that won't quit, and I like to keep her satisfied. I grin. By the sounds of it, she was indeed that. I'm making some beignet, although the batter ain't too fond of the water in this city. You want some? Nah, I'm good. We sit in silence as I watch him methodically move through the process of frying the dough, flipping it over and over in the cast iron skillet until the color is golden brown and perfect. Dumping powdered sugar into a sifter, he sprinkles it over the beignets until all that fried goodness is covered. What's on your mind, son? He sets the plate in the middle on the countertop between us. He got away again, Pop. I don't need to elaborate. We both know who I'm referring to. I take one of the sugary donuts unable to resist the temptation and shove it into my mouth. The crispy pastry melts on my tongue and I groan around the first swallow. He didn't get away, son. Grandfather chuckles, shaking his head. Oh, no, he did not. He took the bait. Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, his arrogant act will draw Carlisle from wherever he's holed up. Carlisle wouldn't be that stupid. Would he? I dust the powdered sugar from my fingertips and steeple them in thought. I believe he is, Pops responds. Carefully wrapping a checkered dish towel around the skillet handle, he removes it from the heat before turning off the burner. He leans forward. Elbows resting on the granite countertop, and studies me. You know, he never did make amends with Genevieve when she came home. He tisks with feigned sorrow. In fact, Delin assured me has him hankering for a relationship with her only child. His only grandchild. So Carlisle's known where the boy's been all this time? I ask, nonplussed. My grandfather picks up a beignet between his thumb and forefinger and takes a small nibble, testing the taste before taking a larger bite. Dad, I do not know, but based on what the boy has been able to achieve, either he's had some very capable people clearing his path, or he has had a fortune to which I've never seen the likes of. What are your thoughts? A knowing gaze meets my own, weighty. 
Motherfucker. Why hadn't I seen it before? Of course Carlisle knew his grandson was in Las Vegas. Not only did he know it, he'd used the distance to actually groom Connor, albeit covertly to take his place. Touché, Carlisle. Touché. I think, I start, but then pause to take another bite of the French donut. That we finally got him, Pop. A wide smile pulls at the corners of my lips as real understanding dawns hot and bright like the first rays burning through a foggy sky. Carlisle finally made a mistake. All it'll take is a right amount of pressure, and we got him. After all this time, we'll get him and his grandson in one fell swoop. My thoughts. Exactly. My grandfather responds with a smile of his own. Welcome back, and I'm still here. <laughs> Do you, are you ready to write a superhero book now? <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to see what your idea is when you text me like in two days you're like okay so what about <laughs> I know I just never did Captain America I'm like oh, I never thought about that to write my write my love story with Captain America <laughs> So the heroine's going to be named Melissa. She's going to have brown hair. I don't hair. think we've ever had one named Melissa. No, we, ha and we have not. <laughs> How convenient. <laughs> Can the villain end up with Leah? That's all I want to know. <laughs> yes. That would actually be very funny. I know. I okay. love it. Let's do it. <laughs> all right. So thanks again for being with us this week, MJ Greenberry, and for Play the Hand You Were Dealt. And, oh, we, let's see who we got up next week. I didn't even look. Oh, I think you were replaying. No, we've got a new book by Lori Roma. Oh, yeah, oh, that we've actually Lori got. Roma. I know, I'm so excited. A Breaker's Wedding is coming up, so that's what's next week. If you guys so. want to experience Lori Roma before she's on, get the book Under Pressure. Now I'm talking about it, I'm like, I gotta read it again. <laughs> I read it like once a year. Yep, yep. And if there's an it. audio of it too. So. Is there really? Oh, shit. Okay, I'm gonna have to download it then. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, join us here next week with Lori Roma, The Breaker's Wedding. So I can't wait to see what she's got. Tell them what to do. Fuck your day up. Make today your bitch. Don't be a dick. Bye, guys. Bye. Read me romance. Read, read me romance. Read me romance. Read, read me romance. You could take a look in a book that's fine. Or you could sit back, relax, and unwind. And read me romance. Read, read me romance.